Father God, that is our prayer today. We've got so many things that we want to pray about, so many things in our lives that we want to see changed. But God, most importantly, change us, change our hearts, change our lives, fill us with your love, open up our eyes in wonder to see the great and awesome and loving, supporting Father God that you are, that you care for us, that you forgive us, that you fill us. May every one of us leave this place today full and overflowing with wonder and love that comes from our great and awesome God. And all of God's people shouted, let's give God a praise church, come on. and take a seat. Well, good morning, church. Today we are starting a, a new message series. Um, some of you, if you've been coming to Gateway for a few years, you may remember that three years ago, I was interviewed in a video for the, the ministry, Bold Cup of Coffee, and they posted it online, and I posted it online, in which I said I was writing a book. That was three years ago. Um, after that video, I was about two-thirds of the way through it, and I decided to take a two-month break. That two-month break became more than a two-year <laughs> break. And because of that video being out there, people kept saying to me, when's the book coming out? So eventually I thought, I need to finish this book. So I spent some time, I finished it, published it, came out on the 4th of January. Today is, uh, we are beginning a new message series called Eyes Wide Open. We didn't plan it this way, but did you notice the words at the end of that song there? Open up my eyes and wonder. It's great when a service just comes together, isn't it, like that? Open up my eyes and wonder. Do you know that when you become a Christian and your eyes are opened up in wonder and you discover that God is good, that he's your loving father, that Jesus is your savior, that there's a whole new life, that there's forgiveness and assurance of salvation and a whole new kingdom to be part of, that's not the only time God opens up your eyes and wonder. Then there comes a time where you think you've learned it all, you know it all, you've read the Bible, you've got all your beliefs sorted out, and then one day God surprises you again, and you see something in Scripture that you have never seen before, or you hear a message being preached and somebody explains something from a perspective that you've never seen it before, and all of a sudden it's like your eyes are opened up again. You're reading this passage that you've read a hundred times, and here is this thing staring you in the face that you never saw before. When I was studying theology, one of our lecturers, um, he, was a kind of, he was an old-time Baptist guy, and he really struggled with the concept of physical healing, really struggled with it. And like, he believed that Jesus healed people and the apostles healed people, but he had never seen anybody healed, so he thought it, it was just Jesus and the apostles. So he really struggled with it and didn't really accept it. And I noticed something. I actually pointed it out to him. 
And even after I pointed it out to him, he still continued to do this thing and was like subconsciously unaware of what he was doing. It was like because he had a belief, or rather a disbelief in the topic of physical healing, when he read the Bible, he didn't even see it. He used to read passages of Scripture that would mention healing, and he would read the whole paragraph and jump over the one verse that mentioned healing. And I would point it out to him, and he would say, no, I didn't. And the whole class would say, yes, you did. So he would read it again and jump over that verse again. It was almost like to him, he didn't even see that verse in the Bible. Because, you see, in order for us to understand Scripture, Yes, we use our minds. Yes, we do research. Yes, we think. But honestly, it takes the Spirit of God to open up your eyes. It's, a, it's an interaction with God. And to, so that's what this book came out of. And I just want to, the book is available for sale um, at, at the info desk there. Um, the benefit of buying it here is that you don't pay postage, plus it's autographed. So you can keep it for a year and then sell it on eBay for a markup, okay? <laughs> or you can buy it on Amazon. The benefit of buying it on Amazon is you might want to just get the Kindle, which is just a few dollars, if you want to just get the Kindle version. Or if you buy the paperback on Amazon, you also get access to the Kindle version free. So it's up to you whether you want my signature or whether you want two for the price of one. Kindle and paperback. Now, this book is actually, it's in three sections. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do three mini message series. I'm going to do th this week, next week, and the following week on section one. Then we're going to take a break for a couple of weeks, do other stuff. Then I'm going to do three weeks on section two. We'll take a two or three weeks break. Then I'll, I'll do two weeks on the closing section. Now, one other thing I want to say about the book is this book, section one and section two, look like they're com two completely different books about completely different topics. Section three ties it together. But sec if you're just reading section one and then you get to section, I read a bad review online by a woman that only got halfway through it and decided she didn't like it so she wasn't gonna read it anymore. Well, she missed the whole point. <laughs> you have to get to section three to see how the two things tie together. And there's something else. If you do buy the book and you like it, post a review on Amazon. <laughs> if you don't like it, don't post the review. <laughs> it will bring my algorithms down. <laughs> and right now I'm at number one bestseller and I'd like to stay there as long as possible, okay? <laughs> so, um, anyway, this is one of the books that you have to read the introduction. I usually skip introductions. Forget the appetizer, I want the entree. But if you don't read the introduction that explains how these two subjects are going to tie together, then it sounds a bit confusing. So here we go. I want to just talk, I want to start off with a verse from the book of Matthew. This verse is the kind of key verse for section one. Um, and uh, is it Matthew? Stick up my first verse, will you? I think it's Matthew. There it is, Matthew 15. It's just as Jesus speaking, and he says, ignore those religious leaders. Jesus is just a breath of fresh air in the spiritual world, isn't he? <laughs> 
Ignore those religious leaders. They are blind guides leading the blind. In other words, they've not had their eyes opened wide. They are, they are supposed to be religious leaders, but they're actually blind to so many truths that God wants us to know that will help us, that will set us free, that will liberate us, that will empower us. But instead, these religious leaders that he's talking about were preaching condemnation, judgment, an angry God, all of that kind of thing. He says, ignore these religious leaders. They are blind guides leading the blind. And if one blind person guides another, they will both fall into the ditch. In other words, if we really want to, to know God as He is and live the life that God created us to live, it's not just listening to somebody else's second-hand opinion about what you, who you are or what you should do or what you shouldn't do or who God is or who He isn't. It's about you entering into a relationship with God where He opens your blind spiritual eyes and you begin to enter into a life of discovery and of adventure. You know, if, you, if you've ever watched movies about conspiracy theories or maybe documentaries about conspiracy theories or worse still, YouTube videos about conspiracy theories, <laughs> you will find that they very often use a phrase about things being hidden, but hidden in plain sight. You know, the, the idea is that, that these signs of the, whatever the conspiracy is, these signs of the conspiracy are, they're, they're open for everybody to see, but for some reason we're going about with a filter and it's going right over our head and we're missing all the information. So for instance, I've called this book Eyes Wide Open. There is a conspiracy movie called Eyes Wide Shut, Tom Cruise movie. I'm not recommending it if you haven't seen it. <laughs> there are some extremely inappropriate scenes in it, even of a satanic nature, so I am not recommending it. But if you have already seen it, you will, one of the things you will know is that Tom Cruise discovers this whole conspiracy that's going on, and in almost every scene of that movie, in the background somewhere, there's a Christmas tree. And the lights on the Christmas tree are put in the shape of a pyramid because it's supposed to be an Illuminati symbol. And everybody's supposed to be going about their life with these Illuminati symbols everywhere, and they don't even see them. The, symbol, the only people who see them are the people who know what it means, the people who are part of the conspiracy, the people who have been initiated. Everybody else is blind to these things that are obvious. Now, that's a movie, it's a conspiracy theory, let's cast it all aside, but let's take that idea that very often there are things staring us straight in the face, but we do not even see them. We've become overly familiar with them. They're ju it's just background noise. And I believe that that is very, very often the case when it comes to reading and understanding the Bible. Like the professor that I mentioned, there must be things that every single one of us have in our life that cause blind spots, that cause filters, that cause lenses 
and that we are all missing really important truths that could help you, that could liberate you, that could build your life, that could take you to a new level in life, that could open up a whole new relationship with God in your life. And so, when I'm talking about that, I did use a conspiracy theories as an illustration, but let's not take that too far. Here is what I am not saying. Because again, to mention YouTube videos, there's lots of Christian YouTube videos out there that are like really weird and are based on the idea, I've discovered a secret that nobody else knows in the Bible. A really tiny, obscure secret in some hard to interpret verse someplace. Do you remember that one? I remember one went about where Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And they got the word for lightning. Now, that was written in Greek, but then they changed it into Hebrew, and they got the Hebrew word for lightning. And it sounded a little bit like Barack Obama. Therefore, Barack Obama must be the Antichrist, and Jesus actually revealed to us the name of the Antichrist because it sounds a little bit similar to the Hebrew word that we changed from Greek into Hebrew to try and discover this big secret that was never there in the first place. That is, there's a difference between God opening your eyes and having an overactive imagination, okay? So I'm not talking about finding the, the tiny little secret that nobody else in history has ever seen. I'm talking about the topics that are so big, so huge in the Bible that other people have seen, that Christians throughout the last 2,000 years have talked about and preached about and taught on and lived in the reality of, but that you personally have not discovered it yet. But when you do discover it, it enlarges your spiritual life. It, it brings a new and greater, it brings a big picture view of who God is and what God is wanting to do in your life. So let me tell you my story. I became a Christian just, I was almost 18 years old, and I became a Christian from a background where I, um, well, I had, I had been kind of, I'd been a punk rocker, and then I kind of got hippie-ish, and I was into drugs and psychedelic things and all of that, and that made me slightly interested in spiritual things. So then my dad had a whole load of weird uh, books, theosophy books and things like that about spiritual things, so I would read some of these occasionally and so on, but eventually God used all of that and led me to himself. I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior, became a Christian. My life was changed. My sins were forgiven. I didn't understand very much. Um, I wasn't legalistic because the people who led me to Christ wasn't. I wasn't a fundamentalist. I wasn't going about beating people over the head with the Bible and telling them turn or burn or anything like that. I had entered into a new life. I had discovered Jesus. I had discovered God as my Father. I was reading the Bible for me to feed my soul. I was praying to get to know God. But then as I grew as a Christian, you know, other teachings come in and you read books and you learn new ideas and so on. And then eventually I became a pastor. And after a while as a Christian, and especially after I became a pastor, I be because when you're a pastor, you find out what's going on in other people's lives too. And 
I know you think I don't even know you. Probably I bumped into you in Safeway and couldn't remember your name and all that kind of stuff. But honestly, somebody has told me what's going on in your life and, and uh, we're praying for you in the office and things like that. I mean, like, you do, you are aware of people are struggling, people need prayer for this, people need help for that. And so you become aware as a pastor, not only of your own spiritual journey, but of other people's spiritual journeys. And when that happens, you begin to see patterns taking place in people's lives and in your own life. And I noticed that when people became a Christian at first, they're alive, they're full of joy, this is exciting, this is a whole new life. But eventually, there is a danger. I saw it creeping into my life and I saw it creeping into many other people's lives. I thought, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with much of our modern day Christianity. Very often we look more like the Pharisees than we do like Jesus. Very often we are more interested in judging people for their sins than offering people forgiveness and grace. Very often we are like, you people are on the outside and we are on the inside, like the Pharisees were, whereas Jesus seemed to hang about with the people on the outside. I began, one of the things that bothered me was sometimes when people were becoming more passionate as a Christian, they were becoming less loving as a human being. You think, there's something not right here. This should not be. In fact, that's a quote from the Bible. It says in the book of James, you praise God with your mouth and then you curse your brother with the same mouth. These things should not be. But they are. And I would notice that. I would notice other things like people getting caught up in fear and doom and gloom uh, and, and, and anxiety about the devil or about, about the future or about the end times and all of these kind of things. And I began to realize that people, there comes a time in people's life where they're gaining more and more biblical knowledge, but they don't know what to do with it all. It's like getting lots of pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, but you don't know what the picture in the box is like, so you don't know how to put them all together. And you're trying to, to jam things together that won't fit. And then you think, I can't get all of these beliefs to fit together. There must be something wrong with me. Maybe I don't have enough faith. Maybe I'm not spiritual enough. Maybe I'm not this. Maybe I'm not that. There's something wrong with me. But if you're trying to attach a piece of the jigsaw that's blue for the sky with a piece that's green for the grass, they don't go together. And very often we are struggling in our faith and we're trying to outwork our faith in our real life and we're producing a whole lot of frustration in our life because we don't have the big picture and we don't know how things fit together. And so, as I, as I went on as a Christian and as a pastor, I began to notice these things that were bothering me, and eventually I was able to articulate them a little bit, and I realized that there were four things that were really bothering me. And I, I, I regarded them as like spiritual diseases. And then, at the same time as I was going through this journey in my life, I kept coming up, sometimes in the Bible and sometimes in Christian books, as I was reading, I, I kept coming across a couple of little mysteries. And I thought, oh, I wonder what that is. And I wonder what that is. 
So I had two topics that I wanted to research, and then I had all this other stuff about practical living in the, your life, and these four spiritual diseases that people can get infected with, and I was thinking about that. What I didn't realize at the time, I continued to research, I continued to study, I continued to buy books, especially old out-of-print books that contained a lot of this information, and I began to study and read it. And what I discovered was that the two mysteries I was studying were actually just one mystery. And what I discovered was that that one mystery was the answer or the cure or the antidote to the four spiritual diseases. So let's just have a look at what these diseases are. Just put this up. The spiritual diseases that I kept coming across were legalism, literalism, futurism, and dualism. Let's talk about them first of all, these spiritual diseases. Legalism, literalism, futurism, and dualism. Next, next Sunday, we're going to talk about legalism and literalism. The following one, we're going to talk about futurism and dualism. But just, I just want to tell you what they are. Legalism is the belief that in order to please God, you must live your life based on a set of rules, a set of laws. It's a law-based religion. And in fact, the majority of religions in the world and the majority of religious ideas are based on legalism. They're based on the fact that God is not happy if you do A, B, C, and D. Therefore, here's a lot of rules to obey to stop you doing things. And if you're able to keep all the rules blamelessly, then God will look down and smile upon you and be happy with you. And if you are not keeping the rules blamelessly, then you are filled with guilt and shame, which doesn't add fuel to your spiritual fire, but actually depletes you and makes you feel like quitting and giving up because you say to yourself, I want to be a Christian, I love God, I love Jesus, but I could just never live up to this standard that is expected of me in my church or in my peer group or with the people I'm hanging around with or so on. Legalism is actually dangerous to your spiritual health. The Bible says, well, I won't get into it too much, we'll see it next week, but the Bible says that legal, see, people get legalistic because they think, I don't want to sin. Sin is wrong. Therefore, the way to stop sinning is to find out what all the laws are, all the religious rules and regulations, and try to keep them. Legalism is trying to cure the sin problem, but legalism does not cure the sin problem. Actually, the Bible says legalism causes the sin problem. It says when you try to live your life by obeying religious laws, it awakens sin inside of you. You know, it's like if you've got a whole list of all the things you're not supposed to do and you read them, sometimes they give you ideas that never entered your head. I never even thought of doing that one. Do you know there's a, a, a very obscure verse in the Old Testament, it says, you shall not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. I remember reading that and thinking, who would do that? 
I mean, that is like sick. <laughs> do you know that there are people who do that, that think it's a delicacy? And do you know where they got the idea? Never tried that before. Let's give that a try. <laughs> Legalism does not cure the sin problem. The Bible says it awakens sin, and all it does is it awakens sin in your life and then condemns you for the sin. Legalism makes you do something you shouldn't do and then tells you you're a very bad boy for doing it. It offers no spiritual empowerment whatsoever. Well, how are we supposed to stop sinning? Open up your heart to God. Let Him come and heal all your dysfunction within. And let Him remake you into the person you were supposed to be. And you will live from a place of love and faith. Not from a place of rules and rituals. In the new covenant, God hasn't written laws on stone. He writes them on our heart. God speaks through our conscience. But we are trying to live by rules. Another one's literalism. Literalism is a, a modern-day Western thing. You see, in our modern-day Western culture, we have lost a lot in the area of metaphors and idioms and figures of speech and so on. We still have some that we use, but we've, we've lost a lot of it. And we have specially lost out, out of touch with a lot of the older, more ancient ones that some cultures still use today. So we read things in the Bible, and we take them absolutely literally, without questioning whether should this thing be taken literally or not. Now, we don't do it if it's obvious. Jesus said, I am the gate. All who come to the Father go through me. Well, nobody thinks that when Jesus said that, he transformed into a, a wrought iron gate and swung open. You know it's a figure of speech, okay? But let me give you an example. Um, in the book of Genesis, God warns Lot and his family to flee Sodom because Sodom's about to be destroyed in some volcanic event. And they flee, but Lot's wife doesn't want to flee. And it says in our English translation, she looked back at the burning city of Sodom and she became a pillar of salt. Anybody ever read that? She became a pillar of salt? Well, I don't know how to imagine that. I kind of imagine it that she turned into a statue. And if you licked the statue, it was made of salt. I actually imagine it as pink Himalayan salt. That's how I imagine it. <laughs> I've imagined it like that, but then surely that would say a statue. It says a pillar. So, like, was it a pillar? Trying, did, did the sulfur all land on top of her? And she, was it like Pompeii? You know in Pompeii where the volcanic ash landed on them and they all froze into statues and you can go and see them today? I wonder all that. Because I'm reading that in English and taking it absolutely literally. But then I discover that in people who speak Aramaic, and in the ancient times they did this, and even today Aramaic-speaking people say this, that's a figure of speech turned into a pillar of salt. We say it all the time. We say they became a pillar of salt or they dropped like a stone. We use both words. Well, what does it mean? It, it means to die instantly, usually of a stroke or something where you've gone stiff and fallen over. 
Now, I've told that to people before, and they've got really upset with My Bible says she became a pillar of salt. Okay, in, in Britain, we have a phrase. I don't know how often it's used here. I don't know if I've ever heard them to use it. But in Britain, we have a phrase when somebody died. We say he kicked the bucket. Okay, he kicked the bucket. I want you to imagine that the book of Genesis had not been written in the Middle East thousands of years ago, but had been written in Britain a few years ago. It would say Lot's wife turned around and kicked the bucket. And in 2,000 years' time, Christians and theologians would be debating what kind of bucket she kicked, what was in the bucket. Was it a bucket of water and she was trying to put the fire out? And then somebody would say, no, in Britain that just means that she dropped dead. How dare you deny the word of God, you liberal, you doubting Thomas. Right. Literalism just makes you sound stupid, okay? It is important to understand what the Bible meant to the original people, not what you can twist it to mean to you. Once you understand what it meant to the original people, you've put yourself in their world, you're thinking with their mindset, and all of us, see, see it, the Bible becomes more real, more human, more earthy. Because I don't know anybody that's turned into a pillar of salt, but I know a few people that have died. I can relate to that story now. And so, and you can relate to that she died of shock because she saw the whole city explode. And so, literalism, now that's just a silly thing. It doesn't matter whether you believe she was a pillar of salt, a Disney statue, or she dropped dead. It doesn't matter. It's not a salvation issue, but I'm just pointing out that we can get ourselves all caught up in misunderstanding the Bible. Futurism, futurism is this obsession with pushing all the prophecies of the Bible off into the future. I think it's got something to do with our modern day anxiety about the world and about terrorism and nuclear weapons and things like that, and especially Nicolas Cage movies in which the world is always about to come to an end if Nicolas Cage can't save it in time. And we, we fill our mind with this, and then we read prophecies in the Bible where Jesus said there will be wars and nations will rise against nations and there'll be earthquakes and famines and false messiahs. And then we start thinking, we think that every prophecy in the Bible is about to happen in our lifetime. Well, some of them are, but not all of them. You read things in their context, and so many Christians have all this fear about the future and about the Antichrist and about the end times and about the mark of the beast. And I mean, like, seriously, people, as a pastor, on two occasions, I have had to talk somebody out of buying a cabin in northern BC so they could hide from the Antichrist because they had been listening to teachings and going to churches where that was taught. All of this stuff pushed off into the future. But if you read those prophecies of Jesus in context, he said that the people who were alive at the time would see it with their own eyes and it would happen to that generation. And then if you read history books, you'll see that everything Jesus said did happen in that generation. And you can breathe an almighty sigh of relief. Ah. <sighs> I'm not going to get a microchip put in my head after all, or whatever video you've been watching. And, 
and dualism. Dualism is the idea that, the, that good and evil are almost in equal measure in the world. That there is this eternal battle between good and evil. I don't know if you've ever seen that picture that goes around uh, and it's, it's supposed to be Jesus and Satan arm wrestling. Have you ever seen that one? It's like in the clouds and they're arm wrestling. And like, and like the, they're both like really muscular and their veins are sticking out and all that and they're arm wrestling. As if Jesus and Satan are equal with one another. God has got no equal anywhere. He has got no rival. He says, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no other. Right? He has, do you want to know what a picture should look like if you had Jesus and Satan? It should be Jesus up in the clouds, filled with peace and joy and victory. He's accomplished it all, and it is finished, and it should be a wee ant crawling away as fast as it probably can. I'm not saying there's not a devil, but I'm saying he is. He was never equal to God, and he is totally and completely defeated, bound and stripped of all his power. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. How much does that leave for the devil? None. Dualism will put fear in you. Futurism will put fear in you. Literalism will put confusion in you. Legalism will put shame and guilt in you. These are the four spiritual diseases that we'll look at over the, in more detail over the next couple of weeks. And we will see how God wants us not to live from these outwardly imposed beliefs, but he wants us to live from our hearts as he works within us and as he leads and guides us into all truth. Those were the diseases that were bothering me. And then I told you about these two mysteries that I kept coming across. One was, the first one was the zodiac in the Bible. Because you see, I was told that Christians were supposed to be against the zodiac and everything. But I would be reading the Bible and I would be thinking, this is the constellation Sagittarius. A, a rider on a horse with a bow followed by the constellation Libra with scales. Oh my goodness, here's another vision in the book of Revelation. It is quite clearly the constellation Virgo. And I would be coming across all of these constellations in the Bible, and I'd be wondering, what's it all about? I mean, we just sang it. You who hold the stars and call them each by name. Do you know that all the stars and constellations have names? And if you go back to the ancient names of the constellations and stars, they tell a story. They tell the story of the Bible. And then the other mystery that I kept coming across was ages and the end of the age. I noticed that some Bibles said, and I shall be with you always to the end of the world. But other Bibles said the end of the age. And so I had to look it up in the original language and I found out it's the end of the age. What is this? Let me just show you a few of these verses. Do you want to stick a few of these verses up? Lift, this is Isaiah 40. Lift up your eyes. See, eyes wide open. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. God was the one who named the stars. 
because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Because if they were, the story would be altered. Let's, next verse. Book of Job 38. This is God speaking to Job. Can you direct the movement of the stars, binding the cluster of the Pleiades, or loosening the cords of Orion? Orion, by the way, the constellation Orion in the ancient world was the messianic figure. It stood for the coming of the Messiah. Can you direct the constellations? The Hebrew and Aramaic word here is Mazaroth, which is the Hebrew and Aramaic word for zodiac, the 12 symbols of the zodiac. Can you direct the zodiac through the seasons or guide the bear and her cubs, that's the great bear and the small bear, and their cubs across the heavens? Do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate the earth? You know, this is saying that God is very familiar with all the constellations and their names, that He created them and set them in place, and they have a meaning to regulate what is going on in the earth. Next verse. Genesis 1, 14 and 15. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, be the sun and the moon, and the stars, of course. And let them, all the lights in the expanse of the sky, let them serve as signs, shout out signs, and to mark, shout out, seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, and it was so. Do you know that the stars in the sky are signs? The constellations form star signs, and each one of those constellations is a picture image, a picture message, a message in symbolic form. They're signs, and they also mark seasons. Here was what I discovered, the more I researched into it, and like, I'm not the only person to discover it, there's loads of books out there on it, but nobody had told me this. I had to go and look for it myself. And I discovered that in the ancient world, including among the Hebrews, their calendar was different from ours. And not only did they have days and weeks and months and years, but they had something in their calendar called ages. And each age lasts approximately 2,150 years. They're all slightly different because they are based on the constellations. The age of Aries comes and goes. Then the age of Pisces comes and goes. And then the age of Aquarius comes and goes. And in fact, in their calendar, each of the 12 months fitted exactly with one of the constellations of the zodiac, ours don't, our calendar's been messed around and it's kind of halfway through a month to halfway through a month now. But originally one month was one zodiacal sign and the prominent sign in the sky and the next month was the next one and the next month was the next one. Not only did the 12 signs of the zodiac form 12, where do you think we get 12 months from? You think four cavemen sat about saying, I think we should have six months, well, I think we should have seven. But the one with the biggest club said 12. No, there was a reason for it. There are 12 constellations that, that we see, and every month is a different constellation, is prominent. And also, there are that's, that forms the year. 
12 months in the year. But there are 12 ages in what's called the great year, which lasts about 26,000 years altogether. And each one lasts about 2,150 years or so. And one constellation is prominent for each one. I discovered that not only were the constellations signs that told us a message, but there were calendar markers as well. Next scripture. Psalm 19, the heaven, this is the signs, this is the message that they tell. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. What knowledge? We'll do this in a few weeks' time, but we'll see that the Apostle Paul quotes this and says that the signs spell out the message of the gospel. Virgo, a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son all the way through to the final lion. Leo, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Christ shall return like a lion one day. The whole gospel is in the story in the stars. They speak forth knowledge. They reveal knowledge and speak without uttering a sound. Next verse. Look at this, Matthew 28. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Next one. 1 Corinthians 3. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. None of the rulers of this age understood it. There's ages. And then, next one which is Revelation, I think. Just and true are your ways, king of the ages. God has a long plan. Age to age he stands, and time is in his hands, beginning and the end. So, God has a big plan. And as I studied all this, I realized that the constellations were the markers of the ages, that my two mysteries were one and the same thing. And as I went on and, and looked at these things, I discovered that at the time of Jesus, there was a major shift on planet Earth from one age to the next. If you want to use biblical words, we could say from the old covenant age to the new covenant age. If you want to use the words of their calendar, from the age of Aries, the ram, which symbolized the old covenant, the sacrificial system, to the age of Pisces, the fish, which symbolizes the new covenant, which began when Jesus called his disciples to be fishers of men with a miraculous catch of fish. And the fish became the symbol of Christianity. There was a huge transition. And in that transition period, between one old age passing away and a new age beginning, all four of those spiritual diseases were fixed. Legalism. The age of the Old Testament law came to an end, and the age of grace came. We don't live under a religious law. We live under the grace of Jesus Christ. At that transition of the ages, all the powers of evil were totally defeated by Jesus' death 
resurrection and ascension. And now when we believe in him, we are seated in heavenly places with Christ far above all principalities and powers. We don't need to live in dualism. They're defeated. The Bible says that Satan and his cohorts are defeated, dethroned, bound, and stripped. The devil's not a big monster with lots of weapons. He's a streaker running around trying to harass you occasionally. He's been stripped. I'm not saying sin doesn't exist. I'm saying legalism's not the answer. I'm not saying the devil doesn't exist. I'm saying dualism's not the answer. What about all of the prophecies about a time of tribulation and a beast arising and an empire, a Roman empire that would behead people? All of those prophecies took place and were fulfilled during that transition period when one age was coming to an end and a new age. And they knew it was, they knew because they had a calendar. And they knew that age was coming to an end and a new age was beginning. All of these problems were taken care of when we realized that we are living under a brand new spiritual age, not the old age. Now, one last thing I want to say, and and, and I can't do this justice, but I'm going to mention it, but I do have a whole message on YouTube uh, called, I think it's called Stages of Spiritual Growth. But let's look at this. Do you want to put up the next? Stages of Spiritual Growth. Look at this, First John chapter 2. I am writing to you, dear children, because, you have, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Then he repeats himself a bit. And he says, I am writing to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Here the Bible tells us there's three stages of spiritual growth. Put up the next slide, please. Look at this. There's spiritual children. What are they told? Your sins have been forgiven on account of Jesus and you've come to know the Father. Do you know, there was a point in my life where I was a spiritual child. I came to know Jesus. It wasn't important what this doctrine and that doctrine, what this person believes and that person believes. In fact, all this stuff about the zodiac and ages, none of that was of any interest to me. Do you know what was important? My sins have been forgiven. Jesus died on the cross for me. God has become my father. I'm beginning a new life. I didn't need to eat. You know, I didn't need to get rushed through my babyhood stage and sit down here and eat a filet mignon. No, I'm still, I'm still on milk back here. That was what was important to me. It was a life of discovery. But then as I grew as a Christian, I moved into the next stage. And I suddenly... Two things happen in that stage. You've got a hunger for Scripture. Spiritual youth, you are strong in the Word of God. I want to know, I want to understand what the Bible means. What does this passage mean? And you begin to learn more. And this is when you're gathering all the pieces of your jigsaw puzzle and you're trying to put them all together. But you don't have the picture on the box, so you don't know how it all fits together. 
And you're trying to put them together. And you know what happens in that phase of your Christian life? Maybe you're in that phase right now. Sometimes you identify yourself. You know, you've got six blue pieces of the sky. I'm a sky Christian. I'm a sky Christian. I'm a sky. And then somebody else has got six pieces of green, the grass, and they're saying, I'm a grass Christian. Sky is bad. You should all be grass Christians. No, we do that. We say, I'm a Calvinist. Well, I'm an Arminian. Well, I'm a charismatic. Well, I'm a dispensationalist. Well, I love contemporary modern churches. Well, I love traditional liturgical churches. You know, as if it's all at war with each other. But the picture has the sky and the grass and a whole load of other things as well. Sometimes we kind of identify ourselves with one camp or one belief. But then, then it grows. Our knowledge of Scripture grows and grows and grows. And now we have so much of it, it becomes confusing and we don't know how to put it all together. The other thing we discover in this stage is that we've got an enemy and you have overcome the evil one. Because when you're a baby Christian, Jesus loves me, this I know. And then you go up to people and you say to them, it's great being a Christian, isn't it? You just pray and God answers. And then the other person thinks, yeah, you're a baby Christian. That stops after a few years. <laughs> God expects you to grow up after that, you know? <laughs> and so you learn that you've got an enemy and that there's problems in your life you have to deal with. Well, this stage is about you wrestling with Scripture and coming to some conclusions, and it's about you identifying the fault lines in your life that the enemy can take advantage of. Jesus said, the evil one comes, but he has nothing in me. And you deal with that, and then you're free from that. And then you go on and grow. Look at this. Spiritual parents are those who are told, you have come to know him who is from the beginning. Just all of a sudden, you're, you're, you have a big picture view of God. You're not caught up in, well, does this verse mean this or does it mean that? Uh, you, you, you've kind of settled these things. You're still open to learn new ideas, but you've, you've kind of integrated your beliefs with your life. And you have a much more big picture view of God. And you realize that him who is from the beginning knows the end. And that he is working out a plan. And all things will work together for good. And, and like here you're gaining a lot of knowledge, but here you're more into wisdom. Now, this message series and this book, Eyes Wide Open, there are things in it that will speak to everybody regardless of where you are on your spiritual journey. But I think the people that will find it the, help, the most helpful are those who are in that middle section, who are, you're trying to understand Scripture, you're growing in your knowledge of God and of Scripture, but eh, there's contradictions and confusions and you don't see how things fit together. The purpose of this book and this message series is to say, here is the picture on the front of the box. Here is the big picture view of what the Bible's all about from Genesis to Revelation. Here is the plan that God is unfolding. And when you see that, all of a sudden things slot into place. And things that you've been struggling with before, like legalism, maybe, oh, I, I, I need to, maybe it's legalism you're imposing on yourself. Or maybe you're imposing on other people and you're judging them. And you know that this isn't right. The big picture, when your eyes are open, that just falls away. Maybe you've got fear of the devil and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. You know, in medieval times, they used to, I, I saw a documentary the other day on TV, they used to carve above their door lintel 
the name of the Virgin Mary and of the Lord Jesus Christ because they were scared that demons would get in their front door every time they opened it. Do you lose them? Listen, see, there was a demon outside the door and you opened it. The light of Jesus Christ will blind him shining out of you and blast him across the street to the neighbor's house instead. You have got nothing to fear. You have got nothing to worry about. You have got nothing to feel shame or guilt or anxiety about. God is your father and he loves you. He has a plan and it is all on schedule. Just keep learning and keep growing. I'm going to close with one verse because I'm over my time. I need to close with one, one verse. And what I want to show you in this verse is how the Bible takes this subject of the ages and it takes these spiritual diseases and it puts them straight together because it was the change of the age from the age of Aries to the age of Pisces, from the old covenant to the new covenant, from law to grace, from guilt to forgiveness. It was that change in the ages that solved all of our spiritual problems, if only we can believe it and receive it. Final verse, I think it's, is it Ephesians or something? Ephesians. In order that in the, shout it out, coming ages, he, that is God, might show the incomparable riches of his grace, not of his law code, but of his grace, expressed in his kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which, say it with me, for ages past was, say it, kept hidden. There are things that were kept hidden. We need God to open our eyes to see what they're about in God who created all things. His intent was that now, not now in 2019, but when Paul wrote this at the beginning of the first century AD, now at the change of the ages, that's when it happened, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to who? The principalities and powers. It doesn't say, and the church should be hiding from the principalities and powers and praying against the principalities and powers. It says the church are seated in heavenly places with Christ and the principalities and powers, all of the evil powers are saying, oh my goodness, look what God has done for these people. They are now untouchable to us. His wisdom would be shown to the principalities and powers in the heavenly realm according to his purpose of what? The ages that he not is going to accomplish. God's not going to put an end of our sin. He's not going to defeat the devil. He's not going to fulfill those prophecies. He has accomplished them. He's accomplished them in Jesus Christ through his birth his life, his message, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his outpouring of the Spirit through everything that Jesus did, it is finished. The devil is defeated. Your sins are forgiven. God is your Father. Stop trying to earn it and open up your heart and receive it, will you? Let's stand together.
I wanted, to, I wanted us to say a prayer about this. And you know the best prayer that I could come up with was the Lord's Prayer. But not the usual one that we pray, which is translated from Greek into English, but the one, the way Jesus spoke it in ancient Aramaic. When you translate it from ancient Aramaic into English, it brings a much fuller meaning, a meaning that, that covers a lot of these topics. Let's put this prayer up, will we? And so, in, in, instead of our Father in heaven, in Aramaic it is beloved Father who fills all realms. Instead of forgive us our trespasses, it's untie the knots of unforgiveness in me. We're going to put our mind in the mindset of Jesus and his disciples. And we're going to pray this prayer asking for spiritual growth. And in Aramaic, it doesn't finish forever and ever, amen, but from age to age, amen. Are we ready, church? Let's say it together. Let's go. Beloved Father, who fills all realms, may you be honored in me. Let your divine rule come now. Let your will come true in all the universe, in the heavens and on earth. Give us all that we need for each day and untangle the knots of unforgiveness that bind us within as we let go of the guilt of others. Let us not be lost in superficial things, but let us be free from that which keeps us from our true purpose. From you comes all rule, the strength to act, and the song that beautifies all from age to age. Amen. Come on, church. Beyond the skies above, love you tonight.